The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com.
Well, I want to um, say thanks to the, the band and to Ben for playing that song at what I'm pretty sure was a 9.30 a.m. request <laughs> from me. That's uh, one of the songs that they, I've always loved that song. And uh, Ben, that's a great piece of writing and, uh, and I, it really set us up nicely. So thank you for doing that. When I was a kid, I went to church every Sunday, uh, twice, once in the morning and once in the evening, and again on Wednesdays uh, at night for a, uh, a thing called caravan, which if you didn't happen to grow up in the particular denomination in which I grew up, you probably don't know, is um, it's like a Christian... Boy Scouts uh, and Girl Scouts mixed together. So there was, there was, you got merit badges for making campfires and also for memorizing scripture. Uh, so I'll give you some idea of the context. But in the caravan manual, there was a chapter on prayer. <clears throat> and in that chapter, it said, God answers every single prayer. And it had three pictures to show how God answered the prayers. The first one was a, a smiley face for when God says yes. And the second one was a frowning face for when God says no. And the third one was a hand for when God says wait. And so they were able to tell us kids with a straight face that God answers all your prayers. And I have to say that even at nine years old, I knew that that was a semantic (laughs) cop-out. Because when we say God answered our prayer, we're only talking about the smiley face, right? The yes. When God says yes, that's an answered prayer. And if God says no, we would call that an unanswered prayer. If God says wait... We would say, why? (laughs) Just tell me. Give me an answer. You're God. Maybe that helped us little kids understand things a little bit better and and allowed us to postpone the engagement of the reality that sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any answer there at all. I've been reading this book by Philip Yancey called Prayer. Actually, on the spine it says Prayer, uh, so it will sell in Christian bookstores. On the inside it says Prayer with the subtitle, Does It Make Any Difference? <laughs> and, and peppered throughout this book are, are stories of people who talk about how they've engaged God in prayer throughout their, their Christian lives. And I want to read you this one by a contributor named Joanne. She says, if you had asked me as a young Christian whether I believed in prayer, I would have quickly said yes. I would have told you about the time I spun out in the snow and didn't get hurt, or the time I dropped a house key somewhere in my 74 Dodge Dart and couldn't find it for hours until I prayed. Maybe God takes care of neophyte believers, I don't know. He doesn't seem to take care of old-timers, though. I could probably list a hundred prayers that haven't been answered 
I'm not speaking of selfish prayers, but important prayers. God, keep my kids safe. Keep them away from the wrong crowd. All three ended up in trouble with the law, abusing drugs and alcohol. I've got to say, Jesus' story of the persistent widow who keeps pestering the judge sours. That's the story that Jason used last week in his nice sermon. (laughs) Thousands of people pray for a Christian leader who has cancer and he dies. What did Jesus mean by that parable, that we keep beating our heads against a wall? I've been living at the edge of the abyss for several years now. Yes, I have had close times, have felt the presence of God, and these memories alone are what keep me from checking out. Two times, maybe three, I have heard from God. Once the voice was almost audible. I was driving to the hospital as a young woman just out of college, having learned that I had leukemia, when these words from Isaiah came sharply to mind, Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I cling to those few memories and get nothing else. No new sign that God is listening. I'd guess maybe 20% of my prayers get anything like the answer I want. Over time, I give up. I pray for those things that I believe will happen, or I just don't pray. I review my journal and see God doing less and less. I get mad. Like a child, I stop talking. I'm passive-aggressive with God. I put Him off. Maybe later. I went to a mentor and poured out my soul, describing in detail all I've been through in the past few years with my health and especially with my kids. What do I do, I asked. He sat there for the longest time and said, I don't know, Joanne. He sighed. I waited for words of wisdom. None came. That's how it is with prayer, too. Now, I'm sure that all of you had something from your own life jump to mind as I was reading that passage, some time when you had a desperate prayer that seemed to get no answer. I know that I have a couple of things that jumped to my mind. And so I want you to think about that unanswered prayer and put it right in front of your face, put it right at the front of your mind, admit it so to speak. And while you have that unanswered prayer right at the front of your mind, I want to read you another story of a person who is frustrated by God's silence, uh, this time from the Bible. We're looking at a lot of different Bible passages fairly quickly this morning, but uh, this first one is opening to Psalm 13, which is a psalm of David, King David, that David. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I'll flip ahead to Psalm 22, another Psalm of David. These words may be familiar to you because Jesus quoted this Psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Here's a lesser known passage from Habakkuk, one of the prophets. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw, this is how it starts. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment becomes, comes forth perverted. And honestly, I could go on and on. <laughs> There's all kinds of that in here. And yes, if you read those whole passages often, they're softened somewhat by some nicer words. Unanswered prayer is a huge problem for the people of faith, and I I just want you to know that it's not unique to those of us who are modern believers, postmodern era, all that stuff. Apparently, unanswered prayer has been a huge problem for the people of faith as long as there have been people of faith. And so, the first little message this morning is that hopefully you'll be reassured that you're not alone. But I am not only a pastor but also a father, and also a husband. And so, it is in my DNA always to want to provide solutions to every little problem. (laughs) We pastors always want to fix something, and we dads always want to fix something, and we husbands always want to fix something. And if you ever find somebody who's all three, just just pretend it's not broken. (laughs) I've put solutions in scare quotes Uh, because I don't know that they're actually going to solve much of anything. I have a few different types of solutions, and I hope that you're not expecting a slick presentation of a simple four-step process by which all your prayers will always be answered, because I don't happen to have that. (laughs) What I do have is a a rough list of uh, different ways to think about the problem. You might say, well, thinking about the problem is just a distraction. Well, sometimes we need a distraction. <laughs> and so the first type of solution that I want to offer to you is a theological solution. Who is God? You say, well, I'm not a theologian. That's for you pastor types, those of you who went to seminary. You guys can be the theologians and just tell us what to think. Nobody in here ever says that, but, you know, some churches. But the truth is, anybody who thinks about God in any way is a de facto theologian. And so the, the better solution is just to, to, to admit that and to realize it, and then to see that because you have admitted it and realized that you are being theological, no matter what you say you're thinking about God, that you have to be 
better at that. You have to become a better theologian, and you have to think more critically about that kind of thing. And the reason that I think that matters is because every assumption you make about who God is and what God's nature is has consequences for your beliefs about prayer. Let me give you the start of an example that Jason will flesh out a little bit more next week. If you believe that God knows everything past, present, and future, then that says something about why you would pray and ask God to do something. If something is already settled as going to happen in the future, then that impacts your view of prayer. So what you've actually done is you've taken a theological statement, something that says God is like this, and you've applied that to your understanding of prayer. And that's going to affect your practice of prayer. See, if God knows all the stuff, and let's make another theological assumption about God, that God wants what's best for us and will always bring it about no matter what. That's a theological statement, right? It's about God's nature. If that is true, then everything that happens to us, even the bad stuff, is for the best. I'm not saying that that's true. I actually don't think it is. But if your belief about God is that everything that happens happens because God is doing it and because it's, it's making it for the best, then that will impact why you pray and how you respond to unanswered prayers. The classic example, which is almost a cliche at this point, is a parent and a child. You know, my five-year-old son is in the room here, and all week long he asks me for things that are no good for him. And he really, really, really wants them. And he is convinced that his life would be better if only he could have that lollipop. Actually, the lollipop is going to make his life worse if he has too many of them. And so I say no sometimes. I know a lot more about the world than he does. By extension, God knows a lot more about the world than I do. And so when I ask for my spiritual lollipops, God says no sometimes. And I stamp my foot and I say, I want it. It has Tootsie Rolls in it. (laughs) God says, no, that will rot your teeth and cause you to have diabetes. (laughs) But it tastes good. Okay, so that only works to a certain extent because at some point you're like, okay, the little baby is very, very sick, God. It's not a lollipop. (laughs) Unless you have that particular view of God that everything that happens is for the best because God made it happen. Again, I don't happen to have that particular view of of God's nature. And so we could have a longer conversation about that another time, and Jason will get into that a little bit next week, as I said. So the theological solution is to realize that What you believe about God has consequences for what you believe about prayer. And it's easy to get caught up in these dances, these endless debates 
about who God is and how many angels will fit on the head of a pin and so forth. And I want to encourage you to try to avoid putting off the answer to your hard question by just engaging in theological debate. But at the same time, you have to be willing to engage difficult and challenging and hard-to-understand theological concepts. So that's the theological solution. The second solution is a practical solution. Very simply, you know, should I keep praying or not? Is it any good? If, it, if it's not any good, then, you know, why bother? While you're trying to sort out, if, if you're really, really struggling with unanswered prayer and you're trying to sort that out, it's going to be really hard to keep praying. I mean, we're commanded to pray. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. It's, it's assumed by Jesus that we pray, and there's all kinds of instructions for how to pray and when to pray and how not to pray and so forth. So it's, you can't just, like, throw it out. But, man, it's, it's hard to muster any energy for it when you don't see any result from it, isn't it? I mean, Abel, the truth is, doesn't actually ask me for lollipops anymore. We don't have him in the house even. <laughs> he knows that. Let me read you another little story from this wonderful book by Philip Yancey. We're thinking about the practical solution of should I keep praying? And um, sometimes we think, my mom told me if I don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> and right now, God, it's probably better if I keep silent. You ever felt that way? Here's a story of a man who uh, was at a fellowship conference. He says, we heard a hospice chaplain tell of a patient who asked to see him because he was in great emotional distress. He was in the last stages of cancer and was feeling very guilty because he had spent the previous night ranting, raving, and swearing at God. The following morning, he felt dreadful. He imagined that his chance of eternal life had now been lost forever and that God would never forgive one who had so cursed and abused him. The chaplain asked the patient, What do you think is the opposite of love? The man replied, as many of us would, hate. Very wisely, the chaplain replied, No, the opposite of love is indifference. You have not been indifferent to God, or you would never have spent the night talking to him, honestly telling him what was in your heart and mind. Do you know the Christian word that describes what you have been doing? The word is prayer. You have spent the night praying. (laughs) So be honest with God. And it's okay to rant and rave and swear at him a little bit. You're not using any words he hasn't already heard. (laughs) King David. You're in good company. So the practical solution is, yes, keep praying even if prayer starts to look and sound a little different. 
It actually provides a pretty nice segue to the spiritual solution, which is the third type of solution I want to offer to you. Um, what is prayer, anyway? Um, I've already just maybe expanded your opinion about what prayer can be by saying it's okay to, to yell at God, and that's still prayer. But if the only way that you ever pray to God is to ask Him for things, and you find that 70, 80% of the time, whatever, you don't get them, and, and you find your prayer life unsatisfying, well, yeah. That's, like, that's a catch-22 right there. It's just going to keep getting worse. So if that's your plan, you want to come up with a new one. And I think that the new plan is to learn other ways to pray so that prayer is not only you asking God for help or asking God for guidance or asking God for whatever it might be that you want to ask Him for. I don't mean to be insulting about this, but you know, that prayer has to be more than a Christmas list. So, other types of prayer, listening prayer, praying with the scriptures, fixed hour monk-style prayer, conversational prayer, body prayer, and so on and so on. If, if none of those things are anything that you've ever heard of or tried, then this solution may actually be quite useful to you because I think you, you have a lot of room to, to grow and to find help. Giving up on prayer in toto because you don't always get an answer is a little bit like giving up on pizza because you don't like pepperoni. I mean, it's un-American to have pizza without pepperoni. Don't get me wrong. But it comes with mushrooms too, you know. So if the pepperoni gives you heartburn, just pick it off. Right? Or order it a little different. Pizza is much bigger than pepperoni. (laughs) Prayer is much bigger than asking God for stuff. Now, we need to ask God for stuff, and that's, I'm not bashing on that as an idea. What I'm bashing on is that as the only thing. And it's actually quite okay to forget about that little part of it for a while. Might be a relief to you. (laughs) not to do that anymore if you are particularly frustrated by it. So the theological solution, a practical solution, a spiritual solution, and the best one of all, a Jesus-y solution. I just made our Lord into an adjective. I'm <laughs> Thou shalt not diagram our Lord Jesus or something like that. You may be familiar with the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read about it in Mark and Matthew toward the end of the book so you know what's about to happen. And Jesus knows what's about to happen. This is Mark 14, starting in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. 
He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Now, I've just read you four verses from that gospel, and it took about 30 seconds. But I think this event actually took much longer than that. And sometimes when we read these Bible stories, it's, we read them so fast and we think that Jesus went from throwing himself on the ground to, well, if it be thy will, in a span of 30 seconds. I don't think that's actually the case at all. I think there was a whole lot of weeping and sweating blood and so forth uh, before he got to the point where he could say, not what I want, but what you want. Some of you know the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's a wonderful book on Christian spiritual practice. And in his chapter on prayer, he talks about this event. And he, he says that sometimes he thinks people hear Jesus say that, if it be thy will, or in this translation, not what I want, but what you want. And they use that as a model for prayer. How many of you have ever heard, prayed, or have prayed yourself, uh, Lord, if it be your will, heal so-and-so? Right? You've heard that or said that before. This is what Foster says about that. Talking about Jesus' praying. Want me to turn that on? Yeah. Perhaps the most astonishing characteristic of Jesus' praying is that when he prayed for others, he never concluded by saying, if it be thy will. Nor did the apostles or prophets when they were praying for others. Their praying was so positive that it often took the form of a direct, authoritative command, walk, be well, stand up. I saw that when praying for others, there was evidently no room for indecisive, tentative, half-hoping, if-it-be-thy-will prayers. And so we have to balance this idea, Jesus' prayer that ended with, if it be thy will, was about himself. And honestly, it was about the most important moment in human history. So when you have something in a situation like that, it doesn't always, in fact, maybe rarely does it, apply to everything. And as Foster points out, we have lots of evidence of him not praying that way at all when he's praying for somebody else. Our pal Yancey talks about this passage too and has a little bit of a different spin on it. Jesus prayed, Your will be done at the end of his struggle with God in Gethsemane as a resolution to all that had gone on before, including a clear request for another way out. 
I have become convinced that the phrase, your will be done, belongs at the end of my prayers, not at the beginning. If I begin with that qualifier, I am tempted to edit my prayers, to suppress my desires, to resign myself to whatever happens. I thus cut short what God wants from me, that I make known my requests, and in so doing, make known myself. So if you want to follow the Jesus-y solution, if you want to follow His model for unanswered prayer, because this prayer that He prayed was not answered, or at least it was answered with the, the no, the, the frowning face, as He went to that cross. If you want to follow His model, you've got a lot of yelling and screaming and throwing yourself on the ground to do before you can get to the, if it be your will, conclusion. And if you have to make a mistake, if you have to err on one side or the other, maybe more time on the ground and less time saying, if it be your will. Because I think you're probably like me. You've spent enough time with the if it be your will kind of thing. And that gets frustrating pretty quickly. So I've given you a theological solution, a practical solution, a spiritual solution, and a jesus solution, and you perhaps have noticed that I haven't really given you any solutions at all. That's because I don't have any. And I wish that I did, but I don't. You just kind of have to deal with this however, however you can. There's a, a great author, Catholic author, Flannery O'Connor, some of you read her work. And she, she wrote in a letter to a friend, which I like to believe she wrote to me. This is what she said. She said, you arrive at enough certainty to be able to make your way, but it is making it in darkness. Don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. And so when I say you just have to kind of get through it and do the best you can with it, that's what I mean. And I can't guarantee that this will be true for you, but in my life, the trust comes more easily when I give up on the certainty, if that makes any sense. Because if you look at, look at it like this very simple black and white, question and answer thing, like I've just got to dig a little bit harder and I will find the thing that makes me figure it out, I will get the key that opens that door, what you have there is a recipe for disappointment, for frustration, and probably ultimately for spiritual collapse. Because you will get that nice black and white answer and it will work for you and you will ride that thing for a a week or a month or a year or ten, and suddenly that little thing on which you have staged all your spiritual body weight is going to crumble. You have nothing left. And at that point, it's going to be a, a long fall. 
So I think that's a, it's, a, it's a myth that there's one simple answer to this really hard question. And that's why I tried to present you with a bunch of different half-solutions because you're going to need all of them at some point or another. I can promise you that. But there is one simple rule that I want to put before you because I think it's a rule that is helpful no matter which of the solutions you're working with. And you probably have other solutions that you'll encounter in your spiritual life as well. I want you to remember this. If you don't have doubt, then you don't have faith. You might have something, and it might be working for you right now, but it's actually not faith if there's no doubt peppered in there a little bit. By definition, if you don't have doubt, you don't have faith. You may have certainty. But the Bible doesn't say By your certainty, you are saved. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) So be reassured that when you have doubts, that just sets the table for you to have faith. Now, I'm not saying don't think critically about anything. You You know I wouldn't say that to you. You know I wouldn't say... Don't try to engage the tough issues. Just have faith. That's not it at all. If you ever think you're hearing me saying that, you need to raise your hand and tell me because that's never what I would hope to say to you. But I do find it reassuring that it's in our doubts that we're able to have faith. And take heart in those Psalms. Read those when you're having trouble. Well, earlier I asked you to uh, admit those unanswered prayers, maybe that one that's really eating at you, and to, to look it right in the eyes while we read the Psalms. And I want to give you a chance to respond to what I've said and to, to uh, these scriptures and just to God in general. Um, and I've got these little ugly pieces of paper here that I'm going to pass out. Pat, would you help me with this? Um, Just take one and pass it along. And what I'd like you to do, take a minute or two. Maybe you don't need a minute at all. Maybe you already have the pen in your hand. I want you to write that unanswered prayer on this piece of ugly paper. Now, you can write it real small, If you want to be secretive about it, you can write it real big if you want to be angry about it, or anything in between. Writing it down is a way of admitting it, admitting that you have something that's unanswered in your life. There are pens under your chairs, by the way. So write it down, and I want you to take it with you. Uh, If you come to take communion, and actually even if you don't come to take communion, I've placed this, uh, this urn in front of the communion table here this morning. And the metaphor is fairly clear. I want you to take that answered prayer and leave it at the feet of Jesus. There's lots of ways you could do that. You could drop it very gently in there. <laughs> you could crumple it up and slam it in there. 
You could tear it to pieces, muttering a different word under your breath with every rip, and drop it in there. Fold it up real nicely. Whatever seems right for you. Um, and then if you, if you are at a place where you're trusting in Jesus with your life, with your eternity, then you're very familiar with the response to God's Word being taking communion, celebrating uh, His death and resurrection by tearing a piece of bread representing His broken body and dipping it in the wine or the juice representing His blood and taking that in as spiritual food and as a, as a reminder and a reenactment of that most important moment in human history. But it's very much okay for you to come and drop that prayer at his feet and then turn around and go back to your seat and not partake if you are not yet at a place where you feel you can trust Jesus with your life. I think he can take that too. So you're writing your prayers now. You can take a few more minutes if you want. The, the, the urn and the communion table are available to you for the rest of our time here together this morning. So don't rush that process. Maybe you let it stare those words right in the face and let them look you right back in the eye for a little while before you go up. And at the risk of being a little bit... Uh, incongruous. Let me close our time in prayer. God, thank you for these examples that we've heard from Scripture and from some great writers of people who are wrestling with the same challenging problem that we face when we ask you for something and seem to get no answer. Thank you for being a God who allows us to speak the depths of our soul to you. And not only allows that, but in that process provides for us and and begins a healing process in us. We pray that uh, at the edge of our doubt, we would find the beginnings of faith. And that in that faith we would eventually come to some measure of peace. We ask that you'd accept these, our cries and complaints on ugly paper with ugly words. And that in partaking in the sacrament of communion we would be reassured that our trust in Jesus is well-placed and that we would walk with Him now and forever in times of doubt and in times of certainty and everything in between. It's in His name that we pray this. Amen. You can come and respond when you're ready. And we'll continue to worship in song.
This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.